Okay, this is Dave Vellante. I have just a little bit after 12 noon East Coast time. Um, I have turned off the chimes, so we won't get interrupted as people uh, join us. Um, so good morning. Uh, welcome to the February 19th Wikibon Peer Insight Storage Research Meeting. Uh, the topic today is uh, a practitioner's approach to architecting storage services. And it's our great pleasure to have John Blackman leading the call. Many of you may know John from Wells Fargo, and he is a uh, respected practitioner who has extensive experience as an IT architect. Bob Jefferson. With uh, specialization on storage systems. And uh, so John has been gracious enough to share with the Wikibon community some of his insights on this topic. And uh, let's see, we've also posted a model that John has developed. It's on the Wikibon bulletin board. So if you go to the home page, you'll see a link there right under events that says uh, Developing a Storage Services Architecture Bulletin Board. And we'll be talking about that, that model a little bit today. So the format of the Wikibon Peer Insight meeting is uh, as follows, for those of you who aren't familiar with it. I'm the moderator today, and John is going to present his premise and analysis. And this is an open forum, as you know, where anyone is welcome to participate and, and ask questions and have a voice. Now, at the end of the meeting, I'll do a brief summary, which will be posted on wikibon.org uh, within a couple of hours. And we'll follow that summary up with additional analysis and pieces that are focused on user implications. So this meeting will last one hour, and uh, it's being recorded. So with that, I'd like to welcome John Blackman in. And John, I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about what you mean by storage services architectures and, and the premise behind your remarks today. Uh, thank you, David. And um, greetings to all. So with that, storage service architecture is a similar but yet different architecture than a traditional services-oriented architecture. In infrastructure, one of the premises that we have are what are consumable services, hence the similarity within application services-oriented architectures. Services are consumed and reused. So from a storage service model, we had to think about what are the services that we are going to provide the organization how can they be, how can they be consumed? Um, if they can be consumed, do they have a business value in being consumed? And how do we go about marketing them and placing them um, at our lines of business so where they understand what they're really getting? And that's kind of the uh, when you think about a service. Uh, we sat down and, were and literally thought about um, an auto garage, a mechanics, uh, like a Firestone shop. What are the services that they were providing, and how did they translate into an IT infrastructure organization? And in reality, they are very, very similar. So we sat down and um, literally started brainstorming what it was that storage is going to sell. And we came up with three top-level storage services. And those services were data information management, and infrastructure management. John, just, I'm sorry to interrupt you. You cut out a little bit there. I, I think I heard data protection, information management, and infrastructure management. Is that right? Correct. So, so every, all services, all additional services, um, actually fall under those three categories. Um, you are either going to be protecting our data, we're either going to be, we're going to be um, understanding what's in it, or in essence, information management, because um, the difference between data and information is the fact that you have a context to place on the data. Therefore, you have information. Um, and the context is not necessarily uh, garnered by us, but it's, gar it's dictated 
uh, by the uh, business themselves. So, so I'm, just gonna I'm just going to interrupt again and just remind people that on the home page, if you, if you look at the bottom left part of the that four quadrants on the home page, it says upcoming events, teleconferences, developing a storage services architecture. Right beneath that is a link. It says developing a storage services architecture bulletin board. In that bulletin board, we've posted a model that John has developed that describes what he's talking about now. Go ahead, John. Thank you. So in that, we needed to find a way to rationalize or visually explain what we were talking about. And in this picture of the model that uh, David has pointed you to was our first and actually a fairly good attempt at discussing the service or the services that would be provided and exactly what type of architectural pattern would come from those services. So um, in, in this particular case, we were talking about a data protection backup slash restoration service. Now, I actually separate backup services from restoration services. I believe the two of them are linked, but they are not necessarily the same. They can have different RO, RPO and RTO times in a way that a, uh, an IT organization can solicit the services to a line of business. So this particular we, this example, um, and the reason why I did these examples was there was some of my own management that did not quite understand how the cube would flow through a service um, definition, how I could actually represent and come out with a spreadsheet at the very, very end, the pattern definition um, flows into a spreadsheet uh, for an engineer to go and build. And the, the cells of the spreadsheet actually end up as the cells in that cube. And as you see that there are really only three visible sides to the cube, and uh, but each uh, piece creates a a different cell. So for this particular service requirement, we have a line of business uh, came to us and says, I've got my four terabyte ORC. What was that? Sorry, you just got some feedback. Go ahead, John. Okay. I, I have a four terabyte Oracle database that I only am going to give you a one hour maintenance window and I want to have my restores in less than one hour as well. So the first thing we had to do was determine our class of service. Uh, in other words, whether it was continuous, near continuous, highly available, or, or reliable. Business, these were business requirements that had specific RTO and RPO times. And so that class of service layer, it was deemed as continuous because of the uh, windows that they were giving us. And then we looked into the component stacks. What were we going to have to use? What types of um, uh, technologies were going to be building up this, um, the components that would make up the service? And then at the third point was our different tiers. What different tiers of storage or technology were we going to be used? Those tiers were made up of various uh, characteristics, um, like tier one, you know, your most highly available, fastest performing storage. Tier four, in this case, ended up as um, offline. Uh, tier three was nearline. Um, since this model was created, we actually created a uh, pushed offline into tier five, and uh, tier four now is an archive tier. So. But in this, in this example, tier four is our offline storage. So we are going to use components or technologies out of tier one, tier three, and tier four to make up the actual architectural pattern to satisfy the business requirements for uh, this particular application. Now, the nice thing about this is once this is all uh, laid out and on paper, the business then understands what it is that they're going to be buying. 
it's not just a set of tires, but it's a set of tires with specific characteristics. Um, maybe 22-inch rims with spinners. Um, but the engineer then knows exactly what it is that he's got to build to satisfy the requirements because the pattern is well-defined. And it's also within, more generally, it's also within uh, their standard product offerings. Are there any okay. questions? Yeah, let me stop you there for a second. First of all, let me say that there seems to be some noise going on. If you're not speaking, we'd appreciate it if you'd mute your phone or be careful if you're on a headset with the background noise. So, so John, if I understand this model, thank you. I think it was very cogent. I just want to clarify. So the intersection of these dimensions and, and the services that are associated with them will determine the technologies that are used, the, the service levels, uh, and the cost. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, the, the technologies, one of the things that we had to do as well as we were creating the services was make a determination on to what technologies we would be willing to support and use. So um, at one time, uh, before this exercise started, Wells Fargo had 22 different storage vendors, whether it was disk arrays, um, tape libraries, uh, switches, directors, 22 different storage vendors. We actually had to start consolidating to become to provide a supportable model, because you can't sell everything unless you're an eBay. Um, but if if you want to be able to effectively sell and support your uh, storage services and make your service level agreements, you definitely have to consolidate what it is that you're willing to sell. Okay, and and as well, I would imagine that not all the 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 cells in the cube are viable. Is that right? Um, Correct. You won't be using all the cells. So in essence, um, you notice that in this example, I use tiers one, three, and four. So there's nothing in that tier two slice, and not even all the tier one, tier one, and reliable uh, would never be there. So none of that slice because. Uh, you would not use a tier one uh, array for a reliable, and in this case, we're only going to be looking at the continuous slice. So if you were to take a look at that cube, it's really the far left um, section, and it only has blocks in the three of those four that we're actually going to be making up um, the, the components that make up the architecture. Okay, that's an excellent sort of intro and summary. The things I'd like to cover today, or at least propose covering, and then we can sort of open it up, but I want to understand why an organization should do this, because I can see some definite friction and some impediments uh, and, and some preparation and other costs associated with it. So I want to understand the benefits. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of those impediments organizationally, and then, and then maybe we can sort of open it up to you know, best practices and, and, and uh, user advice and, and things of that nature. But you know, maybe we could start with why should an organization even consider this? What, what are the sort of plus sides? Well, the, the why we felt was very simple, and that is as an IT organization, we're always asked, seems like every year we're being asked to do more with either the same amount of money or less money than we had the year before. Um, I have heard year after year that the IT budget is flat. Um, and so when you define the service that you're offering, you reduce the amount of custom work because if you don't have defined services, everything is custom. And in addition to that, um, if you don't have a defined set of vendors and services that you're going to be providing with those vendors, then your, your cost for support of all of the potential vendors that are out there is going to be great and, and increasing year after year after year. Did, did you, do you find that by making sort of the services more granular and, and transparent that the trade-offs, businesses may have to make trade-offs 
and IT, I guess, in, in cost and, and function, which led to greater efficiency? Does that make sense? Well, yeah, there, there are always trade-offs, okay? So as soon as you say we're only going to have two or three storage vendors in our makeup from a, an array perspective and maybe only two vendors in our switch, maybe with only one vendor in your director uh, space, so your fabric is going to be made up with really one vendor, there are a lot of trade-offs and compromises that you do have to make. For one, you may not get the greatest or the latest and greatest technology available to you, which sometimes um, lines of business, especially those that go to conferences and have salespeople coming in on a regular basis um, and get to hear, um, all of a sudden it's like, well, sorry, you know, yeah, that may be, you know, really cool technology and it may help you, but it does not help the organization on a whole. And there, right there is a, fine, uh, shall I say, a very political hurdle that has to be crossed in a lot of organizations. Some organizations are very uh, adaptable in bringing in lots of um, support or lots of different technologies. I don't believe that's really the case anymore. It probably was the case five years ago, six years ago. Um, but as the way IT organizations are evolving and also taking the same mindset with ITIL and really having a good um, service uh, agreement and operating level agreements that an organization cannot have lots of different distributed technologies across its uh, support spectrum. Okay, so you're sort of describing an environment that is, is more efficient, less complex, fewer suppliers, um, and then you started touching upon some of the organizational tensions associated with that. Um, before we get deep into that, I want to see if anybody else has any other comments, questions regarding just the, the basic definition, the premise, and the, the benefit statement. So before we go on, let me just open it up to anybody who wants to make any comment there or any other experiences people might have. This is David Floyd. I have a question. Um, when, when you're presenting this to uh, the users or the user management, <clears throat> um, how do you how do you go about it? What what's the um, what's the uh, pitch, if you like, that you put to uh, users, and, and if it's different to management? Uh, so so as a from a. Uh, a line of business comes to me with, in essence, their requirements for an application or for an overarching, uh, we want to, you know, uh, reduce our costs in, in disk or storage. By being able to have the model and the services defined that you're looking to offer them, it makes it a lot easier when if they say, well, why, are you, why aren't you using EMC disk and why are you using Hitachi disk? Now, in this model, disk is disk. It doesn't matter if it is. It, as you see, it's very, very vendor, vendor agnostic. So EMC has disk that falls into tier 1s, tier 2s, tier 3s, and tier 4 space. So does Hitachi. So does IBM. So does just about a lot of other um, vendors. Now, interestingly enough, there are some vendors, um, and, and we took NetApp as one, that said that they were Tier 2, and they did not have anything that fell, to, fell in the Tier 1 space. That went in, uh, for one, that was a major sell job back to NetApp as to what we meant by Tier 2. Also, some customers don't like the term, well, I don't want Tier 2. Why, why do I have to have the lower grade storage? And in reality, it's not so much that it's lower grade, but it matches their performance characteristics. Because the difference between tier one storage and tier two storage today is the fact that you may have a higher capacity disk drive, which may have a slightly lower performance characteristic 
than a smaller capacity disk drive. With that little bit of additional latency, it may have an impact to their application, but even beyond that, it may have a greater cost factor to their application. So if an application is, you can meet with a tier two disk, and you don't have to go to the same type of disk type technology that you would use on a high um, I.O., maybe like a mainframe application, um, and, and in our technology tiers, one of the characteristics that we had for tier one was the fact that you could use that array on mainframe and open systems uh, applications simultaneously. So um, a DMX, a Tagma store has interfaces into it that you could actually carve off Vicon or Fiber Channel. Therefore, it is a tier one class array, where a um, a, NAT, a a NetApp FAS 980 does not have that capability, even though its I/O characteristics may be very very close to that of a Tagma store with very very high capacity disk drives. So the sale back to that organization came came about with saying we can reduce your cost by meeting your character by meeting your requirements by doing it this way. And since it's well defined and it is already documented, the line of business generally buys off on it a lot faster than making it sound like I just pulled this out of my back pocket. Does that make sense? Yeah, I could actually see a situation where the, the line of business or senior executives would hear lower cost, less, less complexity, sounds great to me, and I could see a situation where a lot of the folks that are either experimenting or extensively utilizing certain technologies in, in the application or the example you just gave, let's say NetApp, or maybe you've got some newer sort of startup technology coming in, I could see a lot of the, the technologists being uh, uh, concerned about this type of, of approach and, and there being some friction there. Is that fair? Oh, there's, yeah, there's always that friction there because remember, the latest and the greatest is what everybody wants. Um, uh, you know, that, that's what the sales, your sales force is coming in to sell. Salesforce isn't coming in, generally isn't coming in to sell last year's model. They want to sell this year's model. So how do you, how do you make sure, so it sounds like this model uh, uh, would favor, uh, from a supplier management standpoint, some of those, those folks that have a, a broader portfolio, but maybe not. But, but the real question is, how do you make sure that the cube stays current, that you're not falling behind and putting in a, uh, a too rigid of, of, an, of an infrastructure in terms of the technology adoption choices that you're going to have. How do you make sure that you stay current? Well, that's part of the job of, it's an organizational change and a cultural change as well as a services change. So for one, the organization must understand that if they only support, um, uh, and I'll just use a for instance, uh, Windows NT, that moving to Windows 2000 and Windows XP and um, Windows, two, so shall I say, Windows 2003 server um, is, is a very, very large jump. Years ago, um, matter of fact, Wells Fargo themselves, it took them eight years to move off of an OS2 platform. Even though um, OS2 had been retired for six years, Wells Fargo still had it in the organization and was still actively using it. So one of the things that has to be done is you have to understand technology life cycles. We readdress the cube and the different technology tiers every 12 to 18 months to ensure that it stays current. Now, today's tier one array, maybe in 18 months, our tier two array. And because we get a better price point on it at that particular time, we may be moving, or the frame itself stays the same, but the disk drives in it change. Does that make sense? So there is some reuse of our investment. And one of the things that we did as well 
was we adopted um, a storage virtualization technology from Hitachi that allowed us to put multiple uh, tiers of storage within the frame or behind the frame. So we are able to have tiers one, tiers two, and tiers three in a common management platform and can then swap in and swap out technologies as they come about. Um, that, that was a, a decision that we made to allow us to stay current and also maintain price points the way that we needed to maintain them for the business. Okay. Um, let's see, did somebody have a comment? I got another question, if, if not. Um, uh, the obvious question is chargebacks. I mean, you've got to have good chargebacks in place to do this. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, chargebacks is another cultural issue, uh, especially as you're, as you notice, this is a major transformation. So defining the services is a very simple thing. Um, architecting the services is a relatively simple thing. The difficult things become chargeback and organizational changes because um, the chargeback model that Wells Fargo had at the particular time was an allocation chargeback. Once it was allocated, a one-time allocation, basically that was all a line of business got charged for the life of um, their application. So if you needed 100 gigs worth of disk space, this was a few, couple, three, four years ago, um, you got charged for that 100 gigs and if your application stayed there on that 100 gigs for seven years, um, that's where it stayed. There was no migration off of it. You stayed. We had to maintain the frame because, in essence, the line of business bought those disk drives for the, for the life of their application. And the only way that we were allowed to make a change was the IT organization had to absorb all the costs and there was no cost back to the line of business. So we have also had to change the way that we handle chargebacks. So one of the things we built into it was not only a one-time allocation cost or provisioning cost, but also a monthly maintenance fee and a monthly uh, technology refresh fee. Uh, they were pennies on the dollar. But it allowed us, uh, in other words, or shall I say pennies per gig, but it, what it allowed us to do was actually create a bucket that allowed us as technologists to be able to make the changes on the fly as necessary so that way the business had maintained their same uh, characteristics, performance characteristics, through the life cycle of their application, and we could refresh our technology uh, when our maintenance cycles ran out, we also changed our depreciation schedules. So we never, we don't depreciate every three years anymore. We do, we change our depreciation schedule on storage arrays to four years, which also lowers the cost and modifies the chargeback model. So one of the ways that we reduced our cost to the line of business was to change our depreciation schedules because we were holding on to disk arrays for longer than three years closer to four or five years on average. So we changed the depreciation schedule to, to reflect that and also changed our contracts with our vendors to reflect that as well. And that's another key to chargeback is working with your vendors for the appropriate cost. And were you able to, um, like what other things from a negotiation standpoint were, were useful, uh, chargebacks or on-demand models. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, one of the things uh, that has to be done, or at least we did, because um, when we started this process, Wells Fargo was, um, this was a late 2003, so we were putting probably 20 to 30 terabytes a year on the floor in our Tier 1 storage. Um, and hardly any in Tier 2 and uh, next, well, there's a bit in Tier 2 and not, hardly any in Tier 3. Um, we changed our model with our vendors on how we were going to procure storage from them. Um, at first, uh, having the disks on the floor without powering them up or paying for them 
our audit department said that was an audit violation. Well, we went into our con we worked with our contracts and worked with our vendors and got the contracts rewritten so where we could have disk sitting on the floor, not turned on, not paid for, and not be an audit violation, as well as um, having it available for us to be turned on and paid for it at the moment that we were actually going to use it. So uh, at the current time frame, Wells Fargo is putting somewhere about in the range of 60 terabytes a month on the floor. And because and we're just meeting our demand at that. So when you start deploying that much storage per month with lead times from your vendors, you actually have to truly understand what your capacity is, pre-plan for it, negotiate uh, ahead of time the contracts with those vendors, and get them to buy off on, by the way, I'm going to be making a significant investment with you. I need you to also make a significant investment with me because if you can't, I'm sure that there's another vendor out there that would be more than willing to out you. And okay, even though we have, and even though we have only a couple of vendors, they still know that if they do not meet their uh, service level agreements with us, they can be outed at any time. Because that was the, sort of the quid pro quo for, okay, we're going to reduce the number of suppliers, and you're going to be one of the preferred suppliers, and uh, in exchange, you're going to give us some some favorable uh, terms. And I'm assuming the that on-demand model, you were you were, the, the the way it worked is you would install. And then it got turned on, and you would pay the then current rate uh, of consumption, right? No, we pay the now current rate of consumption. Y yes, right. Uh, what? <laughs> yeah. If you installed it in, in February and turned it on in, in in March, you would pay the March rate. Correct. Yeah. The the first the the then current rate, if you remember right, many years ago, Hitachi had their on-demand model, I forget exactly what they called it. This was about uh, 2002. And I sat down with Mr. Roberson and said, you know, if, if, I, have, if I have just sitting on my floor, and at that time we were, you know, was, we were thinking of it, we were actually looking at three months, four months out. So, you know, I install it in February, but I don't turn it on until June, but I have to pay February's rate. That's a higher cost to me, and I looked at him and I said, you know, I've got to do one of two things. I either have to take it out of your personal pocketbook, if you're a Wells Fargo customer, and, and by charging you higher fees because my rates are higher, or I have to take it out of your corporate pocketbook by not buying it from you and looking at it differently. So, Mr. Roberson, one of two ways is going to happen. I'm going to take it out of your pocketbook unless you figure out a better way to put storage on my floor at a price that I can live with. And if that's the case, I will be more than happy to be a partner with Hitachi in the long run. Right, so you use your buying power there to, to negotiate those terms. Okay. Um, and can you talk a little bit about the, I'm sorry, did somebody have a question? Um, so you talked about the service agreements, um, were there any areas that were particularly, you know, gotchas, any, any real challenges in terms of, of, of delivering? Um, you know, were there penalties? Were there areas that were, where the, 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 the SLA agreement was particularly difficult to live up to? Or can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah, the cultural challenge is probably the biggest one. Remember, we changed from a you buy it, you own it, type mentality to a, you're buying a service, you don't own the technology mentality. You're paying for a service, you know, um, I'm going to tune your carburetor, but you don't own the carburetor. Um, it, it, it's the lines of business struggled and uh, to a certain extent somewhat still struggle because there are pieces within the organization where we still have not created, in other words, a server environment is still not a service. They still, if, a, if an application comes on, 
um, the line of business is very happy buying their server. Now, granted, they want to buy it now with VMware and have multiple servers running on it, but they have not gotten the service model defined for the compute domain. So we were the first to bring in the storage domain, bring the services model in for infrastructure in the storage domain, and with that went a significant amount of cultural changes and cultural hurdles. Um, what do you mean? I don't want to pay uh, $5 a gig for you know this type of storage. I was just talking to this other vendor, and they can sell it to me for a buck and a half a gig. Well, um, or, or I like vendor A, and vendor A still resells your storage array, but they service it, and we want them. So we had to we, we had those cultural changes that we had to go through. Um, a, for a, a classic example for Hitachi storage, HP with the top with their top line storage, the XP line is very much the same as the Tagma store. There are some small differences, but for all in, for, for all intents purposes, it is still an Hitachi array. Sun resells the same Hitachi array. So one of the cultural battles that we had were lines of business saying, I like HP or I like Sun. Why do I have to have the Hitachi array? Why can't I have the Sun array and have Sun support it? Well, all of those costs for support and acquisition um, were built into our cost model or and our total cost of ownership for the service. And we, and we had to eliminate the um, ability to even consider, son, I'm sorry, son, you can't play in this space. Now, it did not make them very happy, trust me. And uh, then you have to go up to senior management. Senior management has to totally buy into, we're going to reduce our cost by this storage model, and we have to have you support us if you want us to succeed. If senior management does not fully support your service model and what you're going to achieve by it, by reducing your cost and providing a better service delivery mechanism to your customers, then this storage service um, architecture will fail. I can almost guarantee it. Um, and for the first two years that we uh, put out the storage service model, um, it almost failed because we did not have complete buy-in from all levels of management. Can, can I ask a quick question about um, applications? Uh, so, some applications, for example, uh, have certain storage qualified uh, for them or certain uh, environments qualified. Uh, how, how did you deal with that if, if uh, it wasn't on your list or did, did you have to deal with that while you were making the list, making oh. the uh, choices? Yeah, we did have to deal with it. And a lot of times we told the vendor, uh, get it qualified. Here, okay. Here's what we're going to use. You get it qualified. And it's back on the vendor, yeah. Right. So like if a vendor came to us and said, EMC Clarion is our only supported model for disk, and it only, only supported in a RAID 1 plus 0 mechanism, I pushed right back, and the first thing I said was, A, why did you only qualify it on that? And B, tell me the significant differences between um, that particular uh, model that you're using and what I'm using, and show me the performance characteristics that your application requires and how I cannot meet them with what I'm pre uh, or presenting to my uh, as my service. How about things like um, sort of as part of the, the SLA or, or penalties? I know sometimes service providers will sort of beg off on a particular approach or technology because it will be too hard to service or it'll sort of ultimately hurt, damage their reputation. I could imagine <laughs> backup 
being one of those things, um, particularly over distributed networks. Uh, how did you handle that? Would you, would you take the granularity of services and the gradation of services to that level, or would you in, insist on a certain type of, of backup methodology, uh, e.g. disk-based backup, or how did you handle that? Well, yes, and so with our backup service, um, at the time that I was, uh, at the time I left Wells Fargo, um, we were actually in the process of taking the backup service. Now, each one of these services that we defined, we did pretty much individually. We didn't do every service all at one fell swoop because you can't do everything all at once. So we got certain services in first. We left other services in place the way they were. Backup is a very classic example of a service that struggles at meeting SLAs. So we are in the process of bringing in a uh, disk-based backup solution um, that we were going to be leveraging uh, for multiple um, or as a general backup uh, platform and then eventually take it off to tape where required as opposed to tape being our primary method for backups. Now in this example that I showed, you'll notice that I actually talk about tiers one, three, and four uh, storage where tier three was our near line and that backups were being actually done to disk. We were doing snapshots and we were doing disk to disk to tape. So the way that I met the requirements for specific applications, we would actually have, and this was, again, an application had to come to us with the requirements that requ that dictated disk to disk. And the other applications, uh, especially since Wells Fargo has over 6,000 nightly, and that's a very difficult thing to change overnight, over a short period of time, where I can handle the uh, critical applications much easier. So we started out with a custom solution, and now our custom solution is becoming a standard offering, if that makes sense. Yeah. Would you even consider outsourcing that type of service as well, or blending sort of internal storage services with external storage services? You know, where do those two meet? Uh, we did consider a lot of outsourcing at times. Um, at one time, uh, Wells Fargo uh, was fairly well outsourced. Uh, we had a, um, a major problem, um, and in that major problem, um, the uh, outsourcing vendor was um, booted out of the company and has struggled actually getting back, and they were a disk vendor, and they struggled back getting back into the organization. So uh, they, they've taken uh, kind of approach, and, and uh, especially with all the privacy uh, laws now, outsourcing, at least in Wells Fargo's eyes, is a last resort. Um, even ING, if I remember, ING had outsourced a lot of their things to um, even IBM Global Services and is in the process of bringing a lot of things back in-house, partially from a cost mechanism. Um, they've, they've seen that it costs less to hold it in-house if they implement um, a services uh, architecure and then outsourcing it too. And yeah, I believe particularly onerous piece, and when you mentioned uh, backup is a particularly difficult to meet the SLA, um, you know, maybe this, you slice off that piece to a remote service provider, but you're saying that your analysis consistently showed it was cheaper to do in-house if, if you've got the scale, which I guess is probably makes sense. Right? Generally, outsourcing is going to be a little bit more expensive or maybe a lot bit more expensive, but you're going to get certain guarantees or certain processes that are hardened. Um, uh, you hope. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so so you, I'm seeing, I'm hearing some, some definite benefits, some, some pretty a clear path as to how to do it, um, notwithstanding the organizational impediments. Do the people on, on the call and the community agree that this is a sensible thing to do? Or are there, are there other sort of gotchas that we're missing here? Uh, this is Nick Allen. I had one question. Um, 
And how would virtual provisioning affect how you bill? Um, thin, thin provisioning, I'm sorry. Okay, so uh, the thin provisioning model where um, technically it's, it appears to be allocated, but you really don't have it on the floor, and it's used in a, uh, a capacity model. When, when, you, when you start reaching capacity, then it takes it. Is that what you're talking about? Right. Um, generally, the way that we handled it is you were uh, charged what you allocate. So even though we may not be giving you everything, um, our cost model or the way that our chargeback model was still somewhat based on it was by allocation cost. So if, a vent, if the customer says, I need um, four terabytes total, but in year one, I'm only going to use one and a half terabytes. In year two, I'll use three terabytes. And in year three, I'll use all four terabytes. We would actually, in for the first year, make sure that he only gets one and a half terabytes and is charged for one and a half terabytes, and therefore, in the second year, would be charged the next one and a half terabytes. Does that make sense? Mm, it makes sense in a storage on demand model, but on a thin provisioning, uh, you've actually given all four terabytes, right? No, you've given them nothing actually to begin with, or you've given them one byte or one megabyte or whatever chunk that the vendor uses at the time. I understand that, but 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 from a uh, a total allocation perspective, they think that they may actually have the entire. Um, yeah, they think. Yeah, to them, it looks like they have it, just that they don't. And I wondered how that would. In theory, that should make your storage cheaper, and therefore you should be able to have a lower service cost. Or Correct. Difference. <laughs> or, or make a profit. Or make a profit, right. <laughs> well, well and, and so um, not everything is perfect, right? Um, one of the things that um, we – hang on for a second. Hey, shut up. Uh, sorry about that. UPS guy just showed up. Um, one of the things that uh, we had to, uh, for the most part, bite off was what could we actually bite off at what particular time. Thin provisioning was something that uh, was a little bit too much for everybody to totally understand all at the same time. So we approached it at the same or with the same uh, model or mentality as we approached standard provisioning just because it made it easier uh, for our financial algorithms. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, again, I know it's not the, pro the total proper answer, and yes, you're correct. It does make it so that we are making a profit, but at the same time, we might be able to have the disk ready and available when that demand actually hits by charging them uh, a little bit uh, using the allocation cost model as opposed to uh, um, you're only using, you know, because we didn't have all of our capacity planning processes in place at that particular time when we were bringing in storage services, okay. which is a whole nother uh, topic uh, to discuss is capacity planning in a in a service model. I mean, we just seen that. I mean, last our last peer inside call, we talked. We had a discussion on remote services, and we looked at the whole business model. You know, the whole consumerization of IT. Right. It just seemed that IT organizations, and I'm wondering if folks agree with this, disagree, or have you know any opinion on it. Seems that IT organizations increasingly are going to be comparing themselves to these types of models from a service level standpoint, pricing, transparency, uh, 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 granularity, et cetera. And there's going to be more and more pressure to, to architect uh, these approaches. Do people agree with that? Do they think that's a bad idea? Are the organizational impediments just too great? What, what are folks thinking? Why isn't everybody doing this? Dave, this how, is... How did you... How, how did you... Sorry. Go ahead. Is that Fred? Yeah, I was going to make a comment, Dave. <clears throat> and it was on uh, John's comments about uh, 
acquisition cost and pricing uh, and in this discussion with Hitachi, but uh, John, you indicated you know that the price was per gigabyte was too high for storage, and I, if it's too high, I just wondered one, uh, what was the right price in your mind if the price that they offered was always too high, and secondly, uh, on a price per gigabyte model, you know that's really a an acquisition cost, but there's the ongoing cost too. And did that play into your acquisition strategy at all, or is it strictly a, a price per per gigabyte, gigabyte issue in that whole discussion? And thirdly, just as a side comment, uh, obviously you went after Hitachi really hard on the price per gigabyte. Do you go after the elements in your TCO that are going up every year in expense, unlike storage that goes down like energy and healthcare with that same fervor? that you attacked Hitachi with? Yeah, that's a great question. Would this, would this whole model work in the healthcare business, right? <laughs> well, I, I believe this model would pretty much work anywhere and you could pick your vendor, okay? Um, the, the pieces that we brought in, in essence, as you notice, this cube has only four tiers and we now have a fifth tier, as I mentioned, in the archive space. Uh, when we first wrote this architecture, archive really was at the particular time considered, at least especially in the financial market, archive was considered anything on tape. So the 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 model about um, you know wh where where does it live and does this work in other areas? We brought in a fifth tier called archive, which separated from offline. Now to answer. One of the other questions about, uh, you know, um, energy, we also have been trying to figure out um, which arrays, and this is our in our tiers, which disk arrays can we use to also reduce our cost. In the healthcare space, I, I see the exact, I, I don't see my data center any different than a data center by, for Kaiser Permanente or United Healthcare or um, a U U.S. West, because data centers are still data centers, and we still run pretty much the same applications. Um, I got into a I got into a discussion about grid computing, and I said, "Well, high performance compute center. Well, that is my data center. I have a very high performance computing complex." So you know, I view my data center as a um, as a grid as well. So we try to take this model that is not only designed for Wells Fargo or was designed for Wells Fargo, but is also um, repeatable uh, to other financial or any industry um, wherever it was. Um, yes, we did go after Hitachi uh, with a, um, a fever and worked on pricing. Uh, there were certain alliances and business relationships um, that allowed us to do so. But I do believe that we could do the same thing with an EMC or uh, in, any other vendor, uh, NetApp or uh, IBM. Um, now, IBM is an interesting model, to be honest with you, because IBM doesn't like to sell direct. IBM prefers to sell through their bars. And one of the things that we found was IBM pricing, which really hurt our model, was we could get different pricings from different bars, even on the same, uh, or depending on the amount that we were buying, we would get, they would never give us a fixed cost. Does that make sense? So when we wanted uh, a price of, say, we were going to try to say $20 a gig, and then uh, replication services. Replication services were an additional $10 a gig. Uh, did you want uh, mirroring, local mirroring and or remote mirroring? That may be an additional $5 a gig. Does that make sense? Well, we, my comment is really it's all price per gig. It's, you know, it's on... CAPEX, not OPEX, as you present it. Is, is there an OPEX focus in this cost equation, or is it right. strictly we, an acquisition we, cost and I'm done with it? We, no, we had an, um, an operation, or what we called a maintenance cost, um, and, and we put it in the per gig. We found that the per gig environment 
or the calling from storage, our lines of business understood my price per gig of my storage. They that's what they understood the best. So we put all of our pricing in that. So a replication service, even though replication might cost say fifty thousand dollars for them, we put it in a price per gig. So that way, if they were trying to replicate ten terabytes, it might be only fifty cents per gig. Does that make sense? And I think Fred's point is twofold. One is um, I would suspect that the 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 infrastructure cost of that total was a minority of the total cost of ownership, number one. Number two is it's ironic or sort of frustrating sometimes that you observe the IT industry constantly delivering on you know lower and lower cost per unit of performance, whereas other industries, be they uh, energy or healthcare, you know, just go up 15% a year in the case of energy sometimes more. Well, exactly. Could a storage vendor ever walk into a customer and say, here's our price per gigabyte, and the customer say, that's good, I like it? Or is the price always too high regardless whatever it is? Oh, no, no, no. We had, we had vendors all the time come in to us and tell us that, that they could um, reduce our cost because their their price per gig was a lot less expensive than Hitachi's price per gig. And the, one of the first comments I made to them was, you have no idea what Hitachi's charging us. Well, and they don't know the OPEX issue either. Well, and, correct. They don't know what our, but our, our, our OPEX costs were built into our price per gig. So even though that we are getting a, uh, for example, say we were charging $20 a gig, we weren't really, our storage was not costing us $20 a gig. It may cost us $16 a gig, and we had $4 a gig in OPEX costs. Or $18 a gig was our cost, and $2 a gig was our OPEX cost. But we built it in there. Um, does that make sense? Again, it came it back it went back to our our line of business, and there and since and we also had a maintenance fee. We had a maintenance fee per month on their storage. So we, we and to Nick's comment, were we allowed to make a profit? Um, the the politically correct answer is no. We were not allowed to make a profit. Were we making a profit? Absolutely, but that a profit that we were making, we were translating by making sure that we had capacity on the floor, availability, um, new technologies, um, better, faster directors, um, that we were taking that money and spending in uh, even, even bringing in consultants in helping us streamline our processes so that way we could deliver these services as we were promising. Okay, um, that was great. I, I, uh, we're out of time here. I'm going to summarize, but I just want to make sure that uh, everybody has had a chance to, to voice their opinions, questions. Are there any other last-minute comments uh, quickly? And then uh, if not, I'll summarize, but, but please feel free to chime in. Okay, um, so First of all, let me thank everyone for participating today, uh, especially John Blackman. Thanks very much for leading the call. And uh, uh, Nick Allen and Fred Moore and David Floyer, I appreciate your questions and your comments. Um, what are we going to call this piece? Hey, David, real quick. Yeah. If anyone wants to reach me, you can send me an email at john underscore r underscore blackman at yahoo.com. I'll be John. more than happy to respond. Repeat that, John. John underscore R underscore black man. J-O-H-N underscore R underscore black man at yahoo.com. Great. Thank you. Okay. Um, so title. I guess, a while back we did at your storage service. Is this uh, at your storage service? Part two or part de? <laughs> Any uh? Part de. What's that? 
All right, your storage service part two, is that it? That works. Okay. All right, let me uh, summarize here. This is Dave Vellante at the February 19th, 2008 Wikibon Peer Insight. And the title of the piece is At Your Storage Service, Part 2. And here's the summary. The basic premise behind a storage services architecture is to think about infrastructure as a granular set of reusable services that can be invoked as needed by the appropriate business applications. This approach allows organizations to optimize on cost, performance, recovery, and other metrics that are fundamental to business processes. One way to conceptualize such an architecture is a three-dimensional cube with the following vectors, infrastructure management, information management, and data protection, where infrastructure management includes a stack of resources from devices to network, to storage and server platforms, all the way through applications. Information management includes various performance levels built on tiered storage. And the data protection dimension accommodates a spectrum of protection methodologies ranging from always on to generally reliable. Sets of various storage services are layered within each dimension. For example, provisioning services as part of infrastructure, copy services would be in data protection, and archiving services in information management. And the intersection of these dimensions and their corollary services will determine the technologies used, the service levels agreed upon, and the costs. Importantly, not all these intersections are viable. For example, uh, the choice of iSCSI as a protocol will not today fit continuous availability tier one performance requirements and therefore would not be an option on the services menu. What are the benefits of a storage services architecture? In addition to lengthening depreciation schedules, we see four primary benefits of this approach, including one, it provides a granular acquisition options for business lines with a high degree of cost transparency. Two, it causes, business, it causes businesses and IT to make trade-offs between cost and function and will naturally lead to more efficient use of storage as a resource. Three, it minimizes the complexity of the technology portfolio and avoids one-off solutions that can create migration problems down the road. And four, it limits the number of suppliers, further reducing complexity. What drawbacks and organizational impediments will a storage services architecture bring? To be sure, there are some political and practical minefields that users should consider with such an approach. First, a reduction in the number of technologies and vendor choices will limit technology options and create friction as leading technologists are naturally going to want to integrate and exploit the latest and greatest innovations. As such, it is critical that organizations use a sandbox lab approach specifically as a means of evolving the storage services model, i.e., their cube of offerings, so that services remain competitive and current. In addition, to make storage services effectively pay back, service level agreements and chargeback models have to be in place and aligned, which will require some deliberate effort and planning. Finally, the politics of consolidating storage services deployment options while limiting the free-for-all mentality will disaffect certain factions within organizations that have become comfortable with uh, high degrees of freedom. What best practice advice should be considered? There are several actions organizations should pursue in regard to storage services implementation, including construct service level agreements and chargebacks that are consistent with services businesses with a one-time cost and an ongoing monthly fee that includes a technology refresh fee. Build switching costs into the model 
i.e., early withdrawal penalties, and construct agreements over periods of time where lower pricing applies for longer contract periods. Second, limit the number of suppliers and negotiate contracts that include on-demand features where vendors will install equipment but charge for usage at the current price. Be aware that land-based backup will present a difficult SLA challenge and consider disk-based backup for distributed networks, possibly even outsourcing to a remote services supplier. Most organizations will likely manage such initiatives as a cost center or at the very least share some of the profits with business lines or reinvest in the technology infrastructure. Action item. Storage in many ways has been insulated from the market forces of services-oriented architecture, SOA, software as a service, SaaS, and consumer-like business models. This is changing and customers should evaluate the feasibility of constructing services-oriented models for storage which emphasize granularity, reusability, and cost transparency. This will allow organizations to make intelligent make-versus-buy choices pertaining to an emerging set of managed storage services from a variety of providers. Okay, thanks very much everybody. Look to uh, the pieces up on wikibon.org over the next 24 hours. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye.